All right. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Citizens. Uh, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at the church. I uh, just want to add two more quick announcements uh, to that. Um, the first is more of a logistical one. Um, th- literally, I think on Friday, they announced that LAUSD would be lifting uh, its mask mandate for all students um, effective this coming Wednesday, So, which means that next Sunday, um, we will be follow in suit. We, from the beginning, we've kind of taken all of our cues from Roybal and LAUSD and we'll be following in suit and we'll be able to make masks optional um, at Roybal. Obviously, encourage you to continue wearing masks for those of you who feel uncomfortable, uh, but just want you to know and you should be receiving a confirmation email from me about that uh, this week as well. Uh, the second announcement is, you know, many of you have been asking uh, about resources, uh, not only to pray, but also uh, resources to give um, to the crisis happening in Ukraine right now. And, you know, this is something we care deeply about as a community. And I think something that we're constantly kind of encouraging our members to do to, to see life as bigger than and what's just right in front of us, that there's actually a war going on on the other side of the world. And so um, right now on our website, we have a page that we've dedicated to the crisis in Ukraine. Um, On our website, you'll find a section where there will be resources that links you to different websites uh, that we've kind of vetted that are that offer ways to pray for the crisis, um, kind of uh, ways to pray for it on your own, but also in a group. Um, There's also a list of trusted organizations that we've compiled that are on the ground doing uh, a lot of humanitarian work, caring for refugees, providing food, shelter, water, and other necessities in Ukraine. And so uh, definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, You can link to it uh, using the QR code in our link tree that's in our Instagram bio, or you can just go directly Uh, to our website and find that as well. And we want to continue as a community to intercede uh, for our brothers and sisters um, in Ukraine right now. Uh, Well, with that, uh, I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. I'm really excited to be launching a new sermon series today. It's something we've been talking about as a staff for a while. If you're in a community group, you know that uh, you already know this because um, you're going to be going through this book inductively, but we're going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of Ruth. Uh, So if you want to turn with me or flip in your app uh, to the book of Ruth, we're just going to be looking at the first five verses of the book. Um, Just a heads up, this might be the most depressing five verses in the whole Bible. Okay, so verses one to five in the book of Ruth. This is the reading of God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Amen. 
Um, well, the book of Ruth um, is this super short book in the Old Testament. It's really easy to miss. It's just four chapters long, but it's jam-packed with so many huge biblical themes that I think are so relevant for us today. You know, um, whereas some books in the Bible kind of zoom out and give us more of a bird's-eye view of how God works in the world through uh, bigger historical events, through kings and kingdoms that rise and fall, uh, the book of Ruth kind of zooms in and hones in on this one small story to show us how God also works in the mundane, everyday lives of ordinary people. Now, uh, if you've grown up in the church, um, you may have heard the book of Ruth taught to you uh, like it was like a Disney fairy tale or maybe your typical Korean drama. Um, you know, like I know Korean dramas have changed a lot since I was young, but growing up, every drama had the same trope. You always had like the poor peasant girl who was swept off her feet by this like generous man who turns out to be like the heir of a crazy massive empire. Right. And, um, you know, when if you're not careful, the book of Ruth can feel like that at first. OK, you have this poor uh, peasant girl, Ruth. Right. Who uh, meets this uh, generous, kind hearted, wealthy landowner, Boaz, who who rescues her. You even have a mother in law in the picture, which makes it really Korean drama esque. Right. And basically, um, at the end of the story, you get a wedding and a child. Everyone lives happily ever after. And Boaz is the hero. Okay, so let me start by saying this. Uh, Boaz is not the hero of this story. Great guy, not the hero, okay? And Ruth is not at all your stereotypical Disney princess. So we need to get that image out of our minds, okay? The story of Ruth is a messy story about real people living in the real world, navigating real life problems, navigating grief, loss, all the isms, racism, sexism, classism, elitism, you name it, it's all in here. And it's a story about how God shows up in the middle of the mess and begins to work his plan out in the most unlikely ways through the most unexpected people. You know, it's very interesting uh, that the book comes right, that comes right before the book of Ruth is the book of Judges, okay? And it's this super dark book full of blood, gore, and violence, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later. But it ends with what I think is one of the most terrifying lines in the entire Bible. The book of Judges closes with these words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's how the book ends. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's this picture of complete and utter chaos and destruction. No rules, no order, just everyone doing whatever they want. And that's how the book ends. And I just think it's so amazing that the very next word that you see if you're reading through your Bible and you turn the page is the word Ruth. The very next word you see. God's answer to a world that has gone off the rails is a story not about a king, not about a prophet, not about a priest. God's answer to a world that has gone off the rails is a story about a widow and an immigrant. I want you to let that sink in. And a lot of people think the Bible is this super archaic, hyper-conservative book that's out of touch with reality, that, you know, that we can't really connect with in modern days. The Bible is so progressive. 
I mean, it's beyond progressive. You can't even call it progressive. It would have been offensive in those times to center a story around women, let alone a widow and an outsider. And, and obviously, even in 2022, we still have a long way to go. But I mean, we're talking about a full-fledged patriarchal culture where a woman derived all her worth and value from the men in her life, her husband, her father, and her sons, if she could have them. Right? This is the world that we're entering into. And, and you know, we didn't even plan this. Now, I wish I could say, like, we planned this perfectly, but actually, if you were with us last week, the last sermon in our Names of God series that closed out that entire series was a sermon around the story of Hagar, also a woman, a single mom, an Egyptian slave. And I think it's just the perfect segue into the book of Ruth because it reminds us that the story of Ruth is not an exception. It's the norm for Yahweh. It's who God has always been from the very beginning. It's a God who dignifies and honors those whom society has overlooked and forgotten. A God who amplifies the voices and stories of those whom society has silenced. And you and I will miss the magnitude and impact of this book unless we recognize just how subversive and countercultural it is. You know, as Westerners, um, especially as Westerners living in Los Angeles in 2022, I mean, most commentators would say that we are as far removed from the world of the Bible as anyone could possibly be. So we are at a huge disadvantage when we study the Bible. Right? You know, there are certain cultural norms that are so, like, common sense for us, that are commonplace for us, that would have been unthinkable in biblical times. Right? Like, Carol and I actually wanted to have a daughter first. Okay? We, we actually wanted that. And we would have been okay if we had all daughters. Okay? No offense to my son, Jack. Okay? I love him deeply. Okay? But, but we, you know, I mean, hashtag girl dad is a thing. Right? People are proud to have daughters. We have to understand that we're living in a, we're entering a completely different world. In those times, to have only daughters would have been a death sentence. It meant your family was cursed. Right? If you, and if you as a woman could not produce sons, you were basically seen as disposable. And that's kind of a painful reality to think about. But we have to allow ourselves to enter that world to fully grasp the significance and beauty of this story. If you put white paint on a white wall, you will not be able to see that white paint. But if you put white paint up against a black wall, that white paint will stand out. Right? In the same way, against the backdrop of a world where women are utterly dehumanized and seen as less than, I believe this is an opportunity for us to see just how subversive and good the gospel really is. The gospel will stand out in stark contrast, okay? Now, today is kind of a, more of an introduction to this series, and we're just looking at these first five verses of the book, and again, they're pretty depressing. Uh, we're introduced to the first character in the story, Naomi, uh, who finds herself in the most devastating life circumstances imaginable. It's literally one tragedy after the other. And uh, it's easy to just kind of skim through these, but I want to go through each one so that we can fully immerse ourselves in Naomi's world, okay? Now, the book opens with a line, in the days when the judges ruled. Okay, let's stop right there. In the days when the judges ruled. I mentioned earlier that the book of Judges is the book that comes right before Ruth, and it chronicles the darkest time 
in Israel's history. Okay, so, uh, you know, you have to understand that that line alone would have sent chills down the spine of any early Jewish reader. Okay, in the days when the judges ruled. If you like Game of Thrones, you'll love the book of Judges. Okay, everyone who's ever been a, ever watched Game of Thrones, you all know that one episode at the end of season three called Red Wedding, right? Um, I won't give it away, but if you know, you know. Um, that's the book of Judges, okay? Red Wedding, right? A lot of uh, people, when they say like, oh, I want to get started reading the Bible, where should I start? You know, some people say start in Genesis, some people say start in Matthew, try Judges, okay? It's wild, okay? It's wild. And, you know, this is kind of when Israel was at the peak of its wickedness. You had massive political upheaval. You had violence. You had war. You had injustice and corruption all converging at the same time. You know, one day when our kids get older, they're going to be like, Mommy and Daddy, what happened in 2020? And we're all going to go to a dark place. Okay, like our eyes are going to roll back into our heads. And we're going to be like, oh, no. Like 2020 will forever be etched in our memories as the year that kind of altered the course of history, that altered the course of our lives. And this is what it would have felt like for a Jewish reader reading those words in the days when the judges ruled. So right off the bat, we have to understand that we're entering a world of a woman who is living in the darkest period of Israel's history. But not only is there incredible spiritual turmoil, we also read that there's a famine in the land. Okay? And, it, and, it's, and we have to understand, keep in mind, this is the promised land. This is the land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. In fact, Naomi and her family live in a region called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. Okay? Um, back when I was living in Philly, there was a place called Sal's Fried Chicken, and I used to go there all the time. And I remember going there once, and it was lunchtime, it was like noon, and I said, let me get the fried chicken plate, and he said, we're out of chicken. And I said, how can you be out of chicken when the name of your restaurant is called Sal's Fried Chicken, okay? And actually, in preparation for this sermon, I, I like looked up to see if Sal's Fried Chicken was still there. They're not there, and I know why, okay? You can't, I mean, you can't be called Sal's Fried Chicken and not have chicken, okay? This is what's happening here. There is no bread in the house of bread. Okay, and so Naomi and her family have no choice but to move, right? And if we keep reading verse 1, it says, So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Okay, now it's easy to read this and say, okay, well, obviously there's no food, so they migrated to another region. What's the big deal? Moab is not just any nation. Moab and Israel have a long history, okay? For some background, Back in Genesis 19, Abraham has a nephew, Lot, who gets drunk one night and basically sleeps with both his daughters and gets them both pregnant. Okay, the Bible is wild, all right? And Lot's oldest daughter has a son who she names Moab. Now, we just did an entire series on the names of God, and we talked about how names matter. And so if you splice up the name Moab, Mo means who, and Ab means father. You put Moab together, and it means, who is your father? Modern translation, who's your daddy? Okay? It's a scarlet letter that's built in to their name. So if you're a Moabite, you're walking around with this constant reminder that this is your origin story. 
You're, you're walking around with the shame of knowing that this is where your people came from. And so you can imagine there is bad blood between the Israelites and the Moabites. In fact, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy and you look through Hebrew law, there's actually a section that says no Moabite or their descendant is allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. Okay, so we're talking about a long history of tension between the Israelites and the Moabites. From a young age, Israelites were taught to stay away from the Moabites like the plague. And so all this to say you can imagine what it's probably like now for Naomi and her family to now go and have to live as refugees in Moab among a people who they've been taught to hate and who definitely hate them. You know, many of us here have parents and grandparents who immigrated to this country, and we know how hard it was for them to be in a foreign place, away from home, not able to speak the language, not understanding the culture, having to take odd jobs and work long hours just to put food on the table. We know that being an immigrant is hard as it is. But now to be a refugee in a country where you aren't welcomed or wanted, that's on a different level. And yet this is what's happened to Naomi and her family, and guess what? That's verse 1. All of that happens in verse 1. And you would think, I mean, could, there, could anything get worse? And it does. Because by verse 3, we read that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, has died leaving Naomi with her two sons. So not only is she a refugee living in enemy territory, but she is now a widow and a single mom in a culture where pretty much the only option available for her at this point is prostitution. And you know what's ironic? You know what Naomi's name means? Pleasant. Her life is anything but pleasant, right? And while we're on the topic of names, you know what Elimelech's name means? My God is king. My God is king, is dead. Okay, so if you understand the meanings of these names and you read through this entire first paragraph, even these first three verses, knowing the meanings, I mean, it's, it's almost comical. You have a woman whose name means pleasant, living as a refugee in the region of who's your daddy because there is no bread in the house of bread. And then her husband, whose name means my God is king, is dead by the end of verse 3. Nothing makes sense. And we're still just scratching the surface. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, tragedy strikes again. After verse 3, you're like, what more can this woman take? Well, a lot more, apparently, because in verse 4, we read that she marries her sons off to two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, which in and of itself would have been looked down upon. But I mean, at this point, Naomi has no other option, right? Because this is her only opportunity to secure a male heir for the family. Well, then we read that for 10 years, no grandchildren. 10 years, right? And then to make matters worse, both her sons die. It's one thing to have to bury your husband, but to have to bury your own children. No parent should have to experience that. And so five verses into the book of Ruth, you have an Israelite woman who is a widow and a refugee living alone with her two Moabite daughter-in-laws because all the men in her life have died. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, like, at that point, um, what are you going to say? The, 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 like, the story should be over. 
right? And, and scholars in recent years have, have rightly compared the story of Naomi to the story of Job. And it's really interesting, right? Because, you know, for those of you who've been in the church and you've grown up in the church, if I were to say, tell me if there's a book in the Bible that, that really speaks to the suffering of this life, I'd say 99% of us would point to the book of Job, right? And, and yes, the guy did suffer, right? He lost his health, he lost his family, he lost his livelihood. Rough situation. But you can make the argument that Naomi had it way worse than Job. Because at least Job, who was a man living in a patriarchal culture, could remarry and start over. Naomi could not. She had no other option. She had nowhere to go and nothing left to live for. For all intents and purposes, her life is over. Now, what is the point of having just these five verses be our text today, right? Because usually when we read the Bible, we want some, at least a little bit of a happy ending. You know, we want a little bit more to let us know things are going to be okay. What can these five verses possibly do for us? And the first thing I want to say is this, that we should resist every urge to move past Naomi's pain. In this hyper-connected digital world we live in, I know that it's so easy for us to just scroll past videos and posts and just ignore the very real pain that people are experiencing on a daily basis. I know that, and, and, and to be honest, for some of us, I think it's absolutely necessary uh, for us to disconnect at times to maybe not watch those videos because I know sometimes watching these things in succession and, and maybe being over, like, over-consuming these videos can actually re-traumatize us and maybe even numb us. So yes, there are moments when we do have to disconnect. But I think these days it's too often, it's too easy for us to minimize, disregard, scroll past, to say that's not my problem. You know, this past week when, when um, there was a video circulating around an Asian woman in New York who was beaten, I mean, 125 times. I could not, it was, I mean, I tried, I started watching that video about seven times, could not finish it. But because I was preaching this, I, I almost forced myself to watch it because I knew I had to sit in it in order to truly feel the pain. I knew I had to truly sit in it in order to understand the pain of our community. And sometimes I realize that to be a follower of Jesus is to sit in the mess, is not to just detach from the things that make us feel uncomfortable, but to step into the chaos, to weep with those who weep, to be present with those who are suffering. When I think about what is the call of the Christian in the world that we live in today, in the world that is so full of brokenness and chaos, is to simply sit in it, to step into the chaos. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who recently uh, lost his mom to cancer. And uh, one of the ways that uh, he told me he's been processing his grief is by sharing just stories of his mom on social media. He said it's been just so therapeutic. Um, every time he remembers uh, something that happened, um, you know, uh, every time he remembers a memory with his mom, he'll share it on social media. And, and one thing he was saying was at the beginning, everyone was so responsive. 
you know, everyone, you know, would, would respond with loving comments, with hearts, and, you know, he felt just so seen and encouraged. But he said after time, a little bit of time went by, he said for some reason he started to get the sense that he was annoying people on social media, that he was actually like overwhelming his friends. And he said, you know, I could have been, maybe it's just me being self-conscious. I don't know for sure. Maybe it's just in my head, but I just felt like the responses stopped coming and I just felt like there was this unspoken sentiment of like, all right, all right, you know, we get it and now I think it's time to move on. And he said one of the greatest gifts that one of his friends gave him was in response to one of the stories he shared on Instagram, uh, this friend responded and said, hey bro, keep these posts coming. I love hearing about your mom. Tell me more. That small act of a person willing to sit in it with him, willing to sit in the grief, willing to sit in the mess and be present with him meant everything. You know, not everyone has gone through the litany of tragedies that Naomi had to endure, but at some point in our lives, all of us will experience suffering. And as Christians, one of the most tangible ways we can embody the love of Christ is to be present for one another in times of pain, to not move past it, but to sit in it with our brothers and sisters as uncomfortable as it may feel. There's a famous story in the book of John uh, of Jesus visiting the tomb of one of his best friends, Lazarus, who has just died, right? And those of you who are familiar with the story, you know that Jesus ends up raising Lazarus from the dead, and yet when he arrives on the scene and he encounters Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, who are distraught and grieving, Jesus doesn't say, all right, all right, don't worry, I'm going to go in, stop crying, I'm going to go in and fix this whole situation. No, it says Jesus wept. As Jesus wept, he wept, choking, honest tears. God is deeply and intimately involved with us in our pain. He sits with us in the silence when we don't have the words to pray. God understands. God, God sits with us. He feels every ounce of our disappointment, our frustration and sadness. God suffers with his people. So the reason we don't move past Naomi's pain is because God doesn't move past Naomi's pain. Now, now, there are two things here about the nature of suffering that I want us to glean from this passage, okay? The first is that suffering doesn't make sense. And that's like, that can be frustrating and even maddening for us, right? There's that age-old question, why does a good God allow suffering in the world? And if there's anything we read here, it's, it, we realize that suffering doesn't make sense. You know, I think often when we experience suffering in this life, our natural instinct is to want to make sense of it. Our natural instinct is to want to explain it. You know, when I read the news and I read about, like, a horrible, like, murder that has happened, it's, I have this weird tendency, I don't know why I do it, the first thing I do is try to find the backstory to see if there's a reason for why this person had to die, right? If it was like a, a like a, husband who got in a jealous rage or if this person did something to warrant like a retaliation because there's something inside me that like you know in a weird way it kind of like though it it doesn't make the situation any better it kind of gives me some peace of mind knowing there's a reason but incidents like what happened in new york last last week that kind of stuff really disturbs me because it's like there is no reason 
you read something, it's like, why does that happen? It doesn't make sense. And I think because of our tendency to want to make sense of everything, we've done things that are so damaging in the church. There are so many people in our community who've told me that they've had pastors and church leaders that the first thing they said when they told them that their family member had a terminal illness was, is there any unrepentant sin in your life? Hmm, is there something that, like, you need to tell me that, you know, maybe they're, they're holding, maybe some baggage that you don't know about? There are churches where pastors have said to women who have who've been struggling to get pregnant, who've said, I think you just need more faith. You know, I think you just need to pray harder. I think God's just trying to teach you a lesson. This is such a damaging mindset. And it does so much damage because it espouses a theology that says God rewards you when you're good and punishes you when you're bad. And we know this isn't true. The Bible never gives us neat answers for why people suffer. Naomi never gets an explanation for why she has to suffer such a horrible tragedy. In fact, you can make the argument that Naomi is the last person who you would expect to suffer. She's an Israelite. She's a part of the covenant people. She's a descendant of Abraham. She's an heir to God's promises. She's someone who's been following Yahweh her whole life. And this can be really frustrating. For some of us, suffering can be really frustrating when we say, wait, like I've been following Jesus my entire life. I serve faithfully every single week. I do all the right things. I've checked off all the right boxes. And yet, why is this happening? And yet we get this story of Naomi, who shouldn't suffer, and yet suffers the most horrible tragedy imaginable if i'm god and i'm going to include this story in my holy word you know i'd probably just at least throw in a detail about some horrible sin naomi like committed when she was young just to make the suffering more understandable and yet there's nothing there's no explanation at all and it makes you wonder if maybe god wants our questions Maybe God wants us to sit in mystery. That perhaps in our moments of confusion, uncertainty, and disarray, we're standing at the very center of God's will for our life. Which brings me to the second point about suffering that I think this passage shows us. And it's that when we suffer, we may not realize it, but we're standing on holy ground. You know, in the Bible, whenever the presence of God shows up to humans, uh, you'll hear the angel of the Lord say, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. And often when we read passages like this, we assume that the presence of God only shows up in certain places, right? In church on Sunday morning, in community groups, in our prayer meetings. But if this text shows us anything, it's that the presence of God also shows up in our suffering. It doesn't mean that God causes the suffering in our lives and in the world, that God causes the death and disease and war, violence and abuse that we see on a daily basis. You know, these are the consequences of living in a fallen, broken world. But when we say that's, that, that suffering is holy ground, what we're saying is that suffering does not signal God's absence. It often signals God's presence. 
that the difficult seasons in our lives are not the evidence that God is walking away from us. They are often the very means by which we are thrust into God's loving arms. It's often in our pain, in our doubt, in our anxiety that we become most keenly aware of our fragility as human beings and God's consistency. When everything is stripped away, God is there. And if the book of Ruth teaches us anything, it's that suffering is often the very soil from which the most profound beauty emerges. According to the cultural norms of Naomi's day, verse 5 should mark the end of Naomi's story. We should close up the Bible and leave. There's no hope left for her. Right? But for God, verse 5 is where the book begins. Verse 5 is where Naomi's story begins. At the end of Judges, all you see is chaos and pandemonium. You want to close the book and you say, Israel is done for. And then you get the book of Ruth. When all you see is hopelessness and despair, know that you may be closer to God than you think. It doesn't make our suffering any easier. It doesn't make the circumstance go away. But it gives us the assurance that God isn't finished even when it feels like he is. He's not finished with us just yet. You know, when you read the Bible, every time you think the story is over, every time you think things have gotten so bad and so out of control that they're beyond repair, these are the moments when God enters the story and does what only God can do. And there is no better example of that than the incarnation. There is no mess or brokenness in our lives that God is not willing to step into, and he steps into the mess of human existence. He steps into time and space, into the world he created, and willingly subjects himself to every kind of suffering imaginable in order to bring about God's work of redemption in us. And when Jesus is being nailed to the cross, naked, beaten, and bruised, you can imagine that the people looking said the story is over. You can imagine people probably thought this is the end. The promised Messiah is dead and with him goes all of our hopes and dreams. Now what the onlookers didn't realize was that they were standing on holy ground because the humiliation and shame of the cross was not the end, it was the beginning. The cross is not the end of the good news. It is the beginning of the good news. You know, uh, to close, here's a painting. I'm going to put it up here. I don't know if you can see it. One of my favorite artists. Uh, if you don't follow him on Instagram, you should. Uh, his his uh, handle is Scott the Painter. And um, he just creates the most profound works of art. And the caption for this painting reads this. Suffering is the death of the idea of how you thought it was all going to work out. Surprisingly, this is the same definition of mercy. I'm going to say that again. Suffering is the death of the idea of how you thought it was all going to work out. Surprisingly, this is the same definition of mercy. The suffering of the cross is the mercy of God. The two don't even seem like they could be used in the same sentence. And yet this is what the cross is. 
And so today, as we launch into this series, we want to sit with Naomi in her suffering, believing that this story, as painful as it is, is the very soil from which we will be given a fresh understanding of God's mercy. As we journey through the book of Ruth together, let us remember that God always uses the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized to be chosen instruments of the gospel. Keep in mind that it's an unwed teenager who carries God in her womb. It's blue-collar laborers in the field who hear God's voice. It's lepers, prostitutes, and tax collectors who get to see God for who he really is. And now it will be the story of a young Moabite woman named Ruth that will teach us the heart of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the past uh, few years and now even the past few weeks I know have been so overwhelming for many of us. We've uh, gotten an up-close and personal look at how broken and fallen this world is. A world full of disease, injustice, war, bloodshed. In some ways, you know, many of us, I mean, the world is one thing, and then we look at our own lives and we see our own suffering. We see our own challenges of family and relationships, the ugliness of, uh, of, of, of just human existence, just on full display. And many of us can feel probably similar to what Naomi felt at the end of verse 5. Many of us can probably feel uh, exactly what Israelites would have been feeling at the end of the book of Judges. There is no king everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. It's a world full of chaos, a world that has completely gone off the rails. But God, may we recognize that we could be standing on holy ground, that in our suffering, you are near, that in our grief and in our pain, you are near. And we pray that uh, as we begin to uh, explore and study the life of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and we pray that in this short story, we would begin to see the way you show up in the most unlikely ways in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the chaos. And I pray that that would give us a confidence, a security, and an unshakable hope. God, as we sang in the song earlier, when fires burn all around me, the foxes in the vineyard will not steal our joy. Because even in these moments, we acknowledge that you are good, that your love is unfailing, and you are near to the brokenhearted. So be with us in our pain. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are enduring and experiencing unimaginable suffering around the world, especially in Ukraine right now. People fleeing for their lives, people not sure if their kids are going to eat. We ask in this moment that you would be near to them. 
We thank you for this word. We thank you for this book. We entrust our lives and our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray.